Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about digital media production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we are really excited to have Robert Scoville on, uh, formerly of Avid. Uh, he is one of the industry experts in in all forms of live audio. And uh, so we're really excited to have him talk about immersive audio, object-based mixing for live events. Uh, it's going to be a great second hour. So if you've got questions for Robert, go ahead and ask those uh, in Makana. And otherwise, uh, you can ask them now for general questions for the first hour. Uh, just a quick reminder to also vote on those questions. There's a lot of questions in here. Uh, we have now opened up, I'll show you a little later, we've kind of started to open up the uh, how our question system works so that people who are not logged in can theoretically put those questions or can put those questions in and we'll let you do that a little bit later but right, but note that there's a lot more questions so go ahead and vote on those questions to make sure that we know what order you'd like us to ask them in and we'll jump into the first question mitch what do we got thanks alex first in paul wallace austin texas asking apple shipped 26.5 million iphone 14 pro max phones in uh, H1 2023, the most out of any model from any manufacturer. Apple had all four of the top shipping models. Does that number seem low or high? Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. I think it seems high. Um, phones have gotten to the point where there is great improvements, but they're a little more in the incremental improvement category. So if you have a fairly recent phone and you're not you know, this is kind of a self-selecting group here. Uh, you know, if you're not a crazy tech person, uh, your phone is probably fine for a lot longer. So uh, it's getting more and more challenging to sell these incremental improvements of phones. Um, and I think people are waiting a little longer and leapfrogging unless they're on a plan where they just get a new phone when it comes out. Yeah, I think that one of the things that's interesting is that, you know, we have to remember that Apple has hundreds of millions of phones that are much older than the newest phones that are always in that. So that leapfrog that Jeff's talking about is happening all the time, you know, because of, the, you know, now you have uh, decades and they're an iPhone user doesn't have a lot of choices. A, a Samsung user or, a, you know, a, many of the other ones have lots and lots of different phones that are all going to run a similar operating system where an iPhone is all focused on that entire back catalog. And now it's becoming more than 50% of the United States and more than 90% of, of, of kids under 18 are using iPhones. And so, so you have that kind of push as that goes forward. I think that the reason you're seeing the, these really high-end phones become the biggest single market, it's not the biggest market, but the biggest single market is because people are are looking at how much time they're spending on the phone. And so that they're, you know, they're basically, um, you know, adding more, uh, uh, you know, they're, they know that they're going to spend six hours a day on the phone. They're going to spend more money on it. And I think that the challenge that you have is the people, um, you know, there's a, the, 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 I, I really feel like, and Courtney will probably correct me in a second, but, um, but uh, I, I, the way I look at Android users generally is they're either much more geeky than iPhone users. They want to have more control. They want to be able to do what they want to do. Or they just don't care. <laughs> it's just, it's just it's two sides of it. I think in, in the iPhone is kind of in that middle area where we just want the phone to work, you know, and, and we don't really, you know, we don't need to get into all the little bits and pieces of it, but we want it to work well. Um, and that's, I think that's the market that Apple has uh, been able to kind of corner. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, and I think you're right about a lot of stuff is that the uh, the Apple has kind of a fanatical following and there's a lot of Apple enthusiasts out there that will buy the next phone, whatever it is, even though they've got the previous year's phone, they don't really need to upgrade, but they just do it 
for bragging rights to say, hey, I've got the latest iPhone. So because of that, a lot of the their previous year's phones go down to the kids or go down one. They're still in use, uh, but they go on to the resale market or go on to uh, relatives or hand-me-downs. Uh, you don't see that as much in the diluted Android market. The Android market, you know, we're not weighted with bated breath for the next, you know, uh, Samsung phone or, or uh, some people, you know, the Google Pixel, you know, there's some little bit of a f- fanatical following for that. But uh, we're not as as I'm, I've got a five year old Samsung and it's perfect, working perfectly well. They don't make that many changes to the operating system or the hardware that makes you have to have the latest version. And I think Apple, uh, once they added LiDAR to the phone, which was a big improvement and something that everybody had to have to, to be able to to do some of the newer uh, lidar enabled uh, apps you know that that forced a lot of people into a new new phone but there's just very small increments to the cameras increments to the speed of the operating system every year in all the phones and so there's not really a reason to update unless you're you want bragging rights you know go ahead chris yeah, I stopped buying new cell phones uh, several years ago. Um, cameras, though, I buy new cameras, you know, and, and that's really the way I see the iPhone. I mean, it it's it still talks, but the camera to me is really the thing. And as for twenty six million being a lot of phones, that's more than I could sell. Yeah, I think that's a lot. <laughs> Yeah, no, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how this continues to work. I mean, I think everyone thought as Apple kept on moving that that price point up that it couldn't get any higher and then they just keep proving that it it can, um, you know, and so and, and again, that market is just a, a much more profitable market than, than much of the rest of the industry. So it's a real challenge for uh, the other the other phone manufacturers. Go ahead, Jeff. And, you know, I mean, it is the highest number of sales. So does it seem high? Yeah, it's the highest. Um, And for good reason, uh, Courtney uh, is absolutely right. There's plenty of people that are on Apple's own annual update plan where it makes it very easy to just every year basically trade it in uh, and get the next model. And absolutely, I think the camera, you know, and, and to Courtney's point, again, there's a difference between need or want or want to be able to take advantage of or experiment with whatever the newest software tools that come along with that offer. So if you're just doing email and watching YouTube, no big deal, making phone calls. But if you're taking lots of photos and videos, the camera always gets better. The CPU, the chips, everything in there, the um, machine learning. So if you're doing anything like that, if you're doing, you know, we just talked about doing LiDAR scanning and processing images. So if you're doing some of those high-end tasks with your mobile device, you want the new one. And by the way, there are plenty of people, to Alex's point, on the geeky, they do want the newest Android phone that has all the bells and whistles. Next question. Douglas Carmichael asked, uh, Alan Heath launched the CQ Series Compact Mixers. What does the panel think? Uh, Go ahead, Jeff. So I'm excited about these. Uh, This is the little form factor. Uh, We've seen the headless version in sort of the Behringer XR series, which is basically a mixer in a box with no controls, and it has built-in Wi-Fi that you control via an iPad or other app. Uh, so the the new Allen Heath has one of those, and then it has two that have integrated touchscreen that are more in a sort of a mixer thing. 
uh, normal mixer configuration with fewer controls. Most of the controls are on the touchscreen. I have two big uh, things that I'm kind of waiting on, which is one, how good is the touchscreen that's built in? Um, and understand that this is a very uh, limited application. It's all very small does not expand. You can't put Dante in this, um, but it has amazing amount of functionality in there. Um, the second is how is the built-in Wi-Fi? I know on the Behringer's, uh, first time I tried to use it on a, on an actual concert, small gig, but you know, 300 people and all their cell phones show up and you're standing next to the unit to try to get the built-in Wi-Fi to work. And immediately you're like, well, I now need to add a Wi-Fi router Wi-Fi access point to this, so you're adding additional additional hardware onto these mixers. Um, how is the touchscreen? It's really not great to mix on a touchscreen. You need that tactile feel. You, know, you have to be looking down at the screen, not looking at your musicians on stage. So having real faders is is for me essential if you're actually mixing music. So would this work in a corporate situation would this work in you know conferences yeah probably it's got uh mic mixing built into it uh it's not dan dugan auto mix licensed as far as i see um so how well does that work that's another question so it looks great in specs it's going to kind of play out when we actually get the units and play with them go ahead mitchell yeah, I agree with uh, Jeff. I think it makes sense. Uh, th the thing with compact mixers, and I have not heard this personally, but Alan and Heath has a good reputation. I generally make decisions based on the quality of the mic pre's in them, uh, whether it's Behringer or Alan Heath or Mackie or uh, otherwise. And once I've done that, uh, the next thing is the uh, the ergonomics. And I agree with Jeff. Having uh, the non-physical uh, uh, faders on there is makes me uncomfortable because I'm used to having my hand a place to go uh, and, and, and the ability to see and adjust immediately. And nothing beats a, a nice Penny and Giles uh, fader under your finger. Um, I guess a touchscreen would work. Wouldn't it be cool if they put it uh, with a haptic haptic sensor in it so you got that feedback when you're moving it around i go ahead elias i wish i would have heard about this before we just spec'd out an install because <laughs> i've got a venue where this would have been perfect they don't have too many inputs and it i feel like this could be a fantastic tool for kind of the smaller houses of worship that's the venue i'm thinking of in particular so looking forward to playing with it the price is the price point is interesting and i think the uh, 16 channel version that's rack mounted versus say a x32 40 channel there's quite a price difference so looking forward to playing with it and elias i think this is your first time on our panel is yes sir right? yeah welcome welcome to the panel thank you good can to you tell here. us a little what what do you do so people kind of know what your background is sure so was computer programmer by trade did events uh way back in high school and got into it during the uh back into it big time during 2020 when something happened yeah. and built a streaming platform from scratch and now do a lot of uh, event consulting specifically on venue installations on producing virtual and hybrid events and just wrote a book memorable profitable virtual that was awesome fun. awesome well, you're in the right place <laughs> so hopefully we'll see you more often it's really good to have you on the on the panel thanks so much good to be uh, here yeah marty uh, go ahead what Hi, and welcome, Elias. Yeah. Um, so so this product seems like it follows the uh, Behringer X Air series 
and uh, QSC's Touch Mix series, which is like an augmented tablet mixer uh, with the touchscreen built into the device that has physical inputs and outputs. Um, the biggest difference that, uh, you know, differentiating factors that I see is um, the responsiveness of the touchscreen. Uh, I liked everything that, uh, that Jeff had to say, but um, uh, the software and the ability to navigate around the software uh, is going to be really important. So I, I, I see this being uh, appealing to smaller applications, simplified applications where there may or may not be trained users, but even with untrained users, navigating around a touchscreen can be, can be challenging. Next question. I have a question. Uh, it's the Condor Blue, which has been introducing a new tool for your kit, the EDC multi-bit driver. What do you think? Go ahead, Marty. All right, so this is an interesting take on a multi-tool. Um, it, uh, it looks like it has a, a, a choice of bit drivers, uh, hex drivers, screwdrivers, and that's about it. But it does give you several options for loading multiple bits at the same time. Um, and it, 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 depending on what you do, like if you're using hex wrenches all the time, uh, it could be real interesting and very handy to have on your belt. Uh, but it, it because that's all it is, it, it is kind of limited. So uh, uh, for 89 bucks, uh, and provided that it's a, a sturdy metal uh, chassis or metal metal body uh, that'll hold up to uh, long long service times, if that's what you need, then go for it. Yeah. Go ahead, Courtney. Um, yeah, I've not, I don't like the ergonomics of the design, you know, because it has, it's flat, you know, it's rectangular based handle. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure how you would turn that in your hand easily. You know, something rectangular, uh, is difficult to turn easily. You need to spin a screwdriver and I've never seen a screwdriver with a flat sided rectangular handle. The other problem is with it, if you're using the side port here, the one on the bottom, you'd be able to generate so much torque into that uh, hex head that you're likely to strip it out if it's a tough, you know, if it's a securely mounted or if you try and over tighten it, you could strip out the uh, hex head of your screw. So I'd be very careful with it. I think they went with this design because it's designed to clip onto your belt. It has a has the belt clip on the back of it. And so it's uh, low profile. It wouldn't stick out very much if it's on your belt. So it's designed to go like that. So, but... I don't think ergonomically it's a good good fit. I'd rather just have a regular round handle screwdriver with interchangeable bits that fit into the back of the handle, you know, a screw off top. Yeah, I will say that dealing with a lot of the screws for a lot of these cages is, is a constant thing. Uh, one of the other things that I have is an Aeromax uh, electric screwdriver, and it is really thin, and, and, and it can insert these. I usually don't finish them that way, but I, I set the torque very low and just kind of just, just am able to pass those things in really quickly. Uh, it is um, having an electric screwdriver that is designed for precision work, not a regular big screwdriver, that will just set those things in quickly life-changing <laughs> just so you know like there's so many things you do with your rig when you don't have to go like this all the time so uh, i would definitely take a research that a little bit next question next from dan halliburton from dallas texas why won't quicktime player play h265 what's your preferred player go ahead, david yeah i'm not sure as to why it doesn't play them might be the age of quicktime as a product but as for player vlc is the swiss army knife of everything but i i 
N-A. Ina is uh, another good player that is uh, Mac only and might suit your bill. Yeah, uh, go ahead, Lucas. Yeah, I also would suggest VLC. There's some quirks with it sometimes, but uh, one thing, especially in Windows, that's very helpful is that you can choose what uh, monitor and what audio uh, device you want to play it on. And that's very helpful in a lot of circumstances. Yeah, and, and it does play some. I think it might be the wrapper of the specific H.265 because we actually lean on it to play H.265 videos back. So so I think that if you're on the newest OS and the newest QuickTime, not the beta necessarily, but the newest ones, should play back a QuickTime video uh, if it's a move file. Uh, if it's some other wrapper, you may have trouble. And then VLC is the one that we usually kind of fall back to to open almost anything. Uh, go ahead, Marty. Yeah, take a look at a player that I've been working with called Pot Player, P-O-T. Um, it's a competitor to VLC. It's extremely flexible, plays lots of things, and you can program it to do anything. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I agree. VLC is the cross-platform winner for me because it, it is cross-platform. And once you're used to its interface, it can work on pretty much anything. And the reason QuickTime may not be playing the H265 is HE, may, you might not have the HEVC codecs in there. Um, and QuickTime likes to to prefer to run, you know, its own codec. So maybe that might be the problem. The Next code. question. John Nichols in Concord, California, experimenting at corporate event in a training room that's 40 by 40 feet U-shaped. Can't change this. I'd like it to capture the audio unobtrusively. I'm wondering if there are portable mic speaker arrays with stands. I have an X32R with Dante. Good morning. All right, so uh, unobtrusively in a corporate environment like or a conference room environment like that is going to be really, really tricky. The only thing that I could think of even trying would be, you know, a microphone, uh, a beam-forming microphone array, Ex except that these things are generally designed to uh, be uh, hung from a ceiling. Um, although... Seem to recall there might have been one or two that will sit on the tabletop, um, but if it's sitting on the tabletop, you're also risking picking up lots of noise from the table. There's the Nereva product, which is the only one I can think of that is designed to be wall-mounted, um, but I do not believe it has a stand mount, so you'd have to rig something up like that. Um, these things are, are really interesting devices because they can actually detect the direction of a sound source, a person speaking in the room, and focus in on that while ignoring sound from other directions. And the Nereva product has lots of control over it, but I don't know about using it in a portable uh, temporary situation. Go, Jeff. To add to Marge's thing, I think there's a, maybe it's a Sure product that has a two-by-two drop-in for grid ceilings that does that kind of beam-forming mic array. Um, I'm assuming that the room is 40 by 40 and the U-shape is maybe tables where the participants are sitting and probably we have a trainer who may be standing at the head of that. Um, so, you know, lapel mic or head-worn mic on the trainer to capture. And then maybe if you want to be unobtrusive, um, uh, uh, PZM, PCC, Crown, uh, PCC 160, again, you have the problem. Those will lay on the tabletop, and you do have the problem if there are papers or other rustling going on on that, or people have lapt laptops open. 
but that's at least unobtrusive. Um, I don't understand if we're doing audio capture, why we're talking about speaker arrays. So I don't know if they're also considering uh, trying to amplify some of this as well. Um, or maybe the presentation just needs some audio. And so that I would keep that separate uh, at the front of the room where the presenter is. Go to Elias. To build on the beamforming array, you might want to take a look at either the Sure STEM ecosystem, because that all works together. There's the tabletop, they have the wall mount as well. Um, if you can rig something up temporarily, there's also that uh, Sennheiser Team Connect 2 mic. We've used it. I've rigged it up temporary. I think we used a bunch of light stands and, uh, and crossbars. That was interesting, but you do need the room for it. It's best hung from the ceiling. Go ahead, David. Yeah, our previous uh, multifunction room, we had a series of those sure boundary mics, the wireless ones. We'd drop them on for legal training and stuff uh, that we'd then zoom out, not for room reinforcement. So uh, next question. Jeff Cohen from Miami Beach, Florida. Has anyone tested the difference between the Zoom background noise removal setting and the new personalized audio isolation setting? Go ahead, Jeff. And this is interesting. You know, I love the fact that <clears throat> Zoom is introducing, especially uh, this being audio day, uh, audio features. And, and I took a look. What's what's interesting, and I'm curious if anyone has tested it, because the description, which uh, obviously they have to cater these descriptions to uh, just regular folks that may come in here and, and take a look at it. But this is the traditional one that we're used to seeing at the very top, and the description uh, just makes it better. And then um, this is this new one, this personalized audio isolation that talks about how it takes a sample and uses that, which at least I believe that's what the original version was doing. So uh, I'm terribly curious if anyone has tested the difference. I uh, go ahead. And, uh, sorry, I'm uh, David. Yeah, this is actually the personalized audio isolation in in access in use. I've got a fan two feet down to my to the floor. TV's on around the corner. Uh, USB mic. So uh, this is it in action. Hope it's okay. It sounds pretty good, uh, Courtney. Yeah, and I'm I'm I turned it on right now, so you can tell me. We can't tell ourselves whether it's working or not. Only somebody else who's listening to you can tell. I've got an air conditioner that's on in the background. I'll see if I turn it off, see if you hear any difference. I just turned it off, but I it pro I don't know whether it went back to no noise removal or it's automatic noise removal. It just, once you enable it, it just says on or off. So I'm not sure what it is now versus personalized audio is on now. Which one sounds better? I think personalized, personalized audio, audio sounds sounds better. Um, it yeah. you know it's still it, obviously it still sounds like noise reduction, but the um, yeah. but it is uh, but I, you know yours we have a little more reference because you're on all the time. And David, I'm not sure what David's sounds like if it was uh, clean. You know, it so far I don't you know Zoom hasn't reached the kind of sound devices noise assist uh, level yet, um, but it's definitely you know on its way. Definitely getting better. Uh, next question. At least Jeffrey they don't Powers. charge you three hundred dollars for it. Sorry, yeah, but no so problem. Great. Jeffrey Powers so from great. Madison, Wisconsin, is asking: Max Streamy just added CNN, and they'll be testing a feature that will announce breaking news in a lower third during the streaming of the shows. Helpful, or will you be looking for the setting to turn it off? Good, Jeff. I'll be immediately looking to turn it off. Yeah, <laughs> that's so that's a bad idea. Good, Jeff. <laughs> 
we get so many notifications from so many things. You know, if they had a setting that said only tell me about, I don't know, what's the highest DEF CON, you know, where like missiles are inbound. I mean, yeah, go ahead and pop up a lower third, uh, you know, if I'm watching cartoons or whatever is on there. But otherwise, that's the last place I want notifications is when I finally said, let me get away from all these other screens and relax and watch something fun. I'm just saying, if it's my last moments, I'd rather just keep watching the movie. You know what I mean? Like, you know, just, 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 just don't, don't tell me. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I agree with everybody else. Yeah, if I'm watching a movie, I don't want to be taken out of that movie by some just recent stupid headline that is not, you know, duck and cover. If it's not duck and cover or run for the hills, I don't want to know about it until the movie's over. Yeah, you know, it, I think I think this is a desperate ploy for CNN to try to stay relevant. You know, I, I just don't know how their, you know, their their ratings have dropped off of cliff, you know, and and I think they're just trying to figure out, well, we've got this thing with all these people here. Let's see if we can get some more reach. Um, and so I think that that's the that's the real problem here is that and and I think that, you know, people I don't think Max is productive enough. I think a lot of folks like me are looking at dropping it. You know, it's just it's just I, we're just, I just don't find myself in it as often. Um, next question. I have a question. It's the new Sony Alpha Series camera, the A7CR. What's the sweet spot for still and video shot making? So what makes this one new, Mitchell? Like what's the, that, what, what have they changed? That is the question. And oh. the, what's interesting Sony, is it straddles is the still versus video. So, Sony it's is, not video centric, but it is a full frame. This is, uh, this is Sony's product line is I will just do this. And it just, it just like, there's so many cameras. It's so many cameras. I, I'm on a Sony camera, like, but to decide on this one, there are three cameras that are almost the same price and almost the same feature set. It is insanity. You know, like what they're doing, like they have no sense of like <laughs> constraint, you know, there's, there's no constraint. Uh, well, it looks they, like a great they, camera. I'm not trying it's not to, a great they camera. Seem, they seem to be trying to make up their mind whether they're going to be a still camera and it does video or a video camera and it does stills. I think when you go to the FX line, it's definitely committed to being video. I, it, it looks like a smaller form factor of the uh, of the seven of the A seven S R or R three or whatever. Uh, it looks. I mean, it's uh, sixty one megapixels. So if you're doing photogrammetry, people like me that do photogrammetry, these cameras are incredible because it's a sixty one megapixel. Now the other the the Sony A seven R four does a pixel shifting thing where it can do up to two hundred and up to 240 megapixel images by it's it's actually moving the sensor one pixel like this as it takes the picture really really fast and so take these really high you can't use that for photogrammetry though because it's computational photography which doesn't work but you can take these massive photos with it it's a really interesting uh, really interesting product go ahead chris it may it may very well be that their logic for the splatter that you drew alex is I mean, if nothing else, we are talking about it, you know, no, I, I mean, it but puts it, it puts so it in a new it's, cycle. It, here's the problem, though, is that it creates this incredible, I think that it locks people up from buying things when they, totally. when they, and this is, you know, because they don't know what, and I think that's part of why Apple also sells a lot of iPhones is that it's a much simpler decision process. And, you know, Apple had its own problems where it was trying to like fulfill the Microsoft uh, plan in the 1990s where they had like 30 versions of a Mac, which I feel like they're on their way back to, but they had like 30 versions of a Mac and you couldn't figure out which one, which one should I get? Should I get the one with the CD? There's one that'll have a TV. There's one that does all these other things. And it just becomes confusing. It took me 
uh, two months to decide which camera, to, which is this cameras to buy as this little one, because I just couldn't figure out like, oh, does it do this or does it not do this? And um, yeah, go ahead, Jeff. I just have to add, when you drew that, that immediately struck me as Google's messaging strategy. Yeah. Um, same same roadmap. Yeah. And the difference, I mean, to point out interesting, to, to Chris's point, I mean, here you're buying a product. At least when Google puts out something, you have no idea why, and you have no idea if they're going to pull it after you get invested into using it. Uh, you, you spend time. At least you didn't shell out a bunch of money uh, on something I mean, like this if it's I, just to get attention. I will say that... that at the surface, it looks like they're giving it another name, making it smaller. It has most of the features that an A7 uh, IV would have, except that it's a lot less expensive. So it, it may be just taking a lot of the A7 um, tools and making them, you know, just making them less expensive without having A7 users upset that they dropped the price. One, uh, one thing you'd expect from a Sony is if you buy one, there's going to be another one in six months. Or that's less. almost identical, but just slightly different with a different price by, by a little. <laughs> this is so confusing. There's, so another, funny. there's another aspect to this. You know, a lot of times, and I've heard a lot of people say this about uh, Apple, um, well, you know, they have new stuff. They're just not releasing it, you know. That they're just not letting us have it. And maybe Sony is just saying, well, you know, maybe they have multiple design teams and this one. I will mean, say their their pro division seems a lot more constrained. You know, they have a pretty, as, as Mitchell said, they have, you know, FX3, FX6, FX9. They have the, you know, then they have these other ones. And, and it's, it's, it's a much smaller FR7, I guess, fits into that. I, I think Sony can't quite figure out where to put the FR7 because I, I, on their site, it keeps on showing up in different places. But, um, but it's a, I think that the, yeah, the pro line seems to be like not as, it seems like the photography group just is like, I'm just going to keep releasing products. Um, next question. Kyle Hammond from Chicago. Uh, is the new RoadGo Pro a viable option for a kit you're sending to someone for a kitchen set audio? Go ahead, Jeff. I think these these road goes are kind of amazing for what they do. There's a whole lot of bang for the buck inside of that. Uh, a lot of options. I like the 32-bit onboard recording. Uh, so in case you have any wireless problems, you have a dedicated recorder right on the transmitter. Um, going beyond just the two that you get in one set gets difficult. So it's really kind of a limited just to what they give you in that option. Um, the the new Pro has time code, at least a generator, so you can um, put that into your camera and sync more easily, not have to rely on audio sync. Um, but again, you can't run three with the same time code because the you only get two in the kit and you can't jam both of them with the same time code. Um, but for a small thing like like this kitchen set, you know, um, someone with a little bit of technical skills can set these up, even if you're not an audio person, and quickly find the right level and you have the protection of the 32-bit. If you've set your uh, level wrong, you have that recording you can get to recover from clipping. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead, uh, Lucas. Sorry. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, one thing uh, I, I would recommend, uh, I haven't heard the microphone on the new ones, uh, but I always would recommend using an external microphone with those just because of the aesthetics, at least to have this bulky little thing clipped to your something. Um, and it usually also would, would sound better, especially when there's a windy thing, the, the wind first don't 
don't really work that well. So yeah, I, I'd recommend uh, uh, an external microphone with those. Go ahead, Courtney. I agree with Lucas, and, the, and this Pro Kit does come with uh, it's uh, two lavaliers, uh, so you can use the external lavaliers, and you can put the ugly microphone pack out of sight or below, out of below the camera, and so on. Thirty-two bit, thirty-two bit recording is nice. I have a feeling their implementation of time code is not accurate. I've seen uh, YouTube videos where people are claiming that uh, if you the time code generator is in the receiver only, and um, it may talk to the transmitter. I'm not sure the transmitters are putting that time code in as a broadcast wave file into the metadata of the recorded file, 32-bit float file on the recorders themselves. I wouldn't know until I tr test it. But um, I, th I have a feeling they're just throwing it on the second audio channel on, on the 32-bit recorder. Uh, so you're just getting an LTC code uh, along with your time code and it's not true broadcast waveform format. and they showed up jamming uh jamming cameras from the receiver so you have to plug the receiver's uh output into each camera and put it into time code mode so it sends ltc time code to jam each camera and of course each camera most consumer cameras don't have uh, temperature compensated crystals in them so they start to drift pretty quickly and i think it only has one flavor of time code which is 30 so there's that Good, Chris. Yeah, Kyle. Probably it's probably going to be fine. Yes, you can use the lav. They also have a little uh, magnetic thing. If you did want to use the square, you could you put a little piece of metal behind it, and it'll stick. You know, you don't have to clip it. Um, just make sure you know you test it. Unless you're made of money, I mean, this is a good low budget way to do it. Keep in mind, uh, if you do lav and belt clip it, uh, it's not. It's not as robust as the more pro wireless mics, and putting it, putting a body between the transmitter and the receiver may be enough to cause problems. Next question. Tommy Shans from St. Paul, Minnesota. Do most of you use Companion for setting up your stream decks, or do you just use the Elgato software? Go, Jeff. I use Companion on all the ones that I've used for production shows, and... Uh, have my own uh, Stream Deck XL on the way. Should arrive later today, thanks to the uh, Office Hours Discord. Someone mentioned that it's on sale right now, uh, $50 off. So head on to B&H or Amazon and pick up uh, an XL. Go ahead, Elias. Hang on, I just need to add to cart now that I heard that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love Companion. It allows me to do just the fact that I can do the macros and just do all my thinking in advance when I'm setting up for mixing, for doing anything complicated. I love it. I use the Companion over the built-in software. Built-in software is fine if you've just got really basic stuff you're doing, but Companion, just the customize, the amount you can do on customization is awesome. Love Companion. Go ahead, Lucas. Yeah, I agree, but I, I think it depends a little bit. If I do, I'm doing production and want to control a lot of different um, things, I'll use Companion. But there are some things the built-in software is actually better for, especially when you want to tie in more into the operating system, doing shortcuts and stuff like that. I think the Elgato software is actually better for that. Uh, good morning. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Companion is boss um, when you're working with something that it supports, but things like hotkeys, the native Zoom app, 
app, for example, um, Companion doesn't support. So I use it in uh, the mixed mode where I have some buttons using the native uh, <clears throat> Stream Deck app and um, most of the other buttons are using Companion. Good, David. Yep. Companion all the way running on a Raspberry Pi 4 with one of each Stream Decks tied to that directly. Um, for the non-supported apps, something like Visrio Listener, um, we'll get around that for shortcuts and stuff that doesn't have companion native support. Next question. John Waldman from, excuse me, just a second. Hamilton, um, New Zealand. Yeah, the, the whole screen just got really big. Uh, looking for a budget tripod and head for video capture in dusty dirt track venues. Tripod also needs to be tall to replace a worn Benro S6 rig for use with a JVC GYHM 180 camcorder and video assist. Would the combination in the Lynx be a good option or can the panel recommend an alternative? Obviously, it depends. <laughs> so uh, I, I wouldn't look for a tall tripod. What I'd look for is something you're going to put under the tripod. So I know there's a temptation to have a tall, tall tripod, but as you start to extend that tri tripod up, it's going to become less and less stable. You're going to have higher vibration. So you really want to think about things to put under it, like a spider pod. A spider pod is a pretty popular one to throw underneath a, a tripod there. A spider pod or a riser. Um, a lot of times what we do is we, uh, for, for the events that we do, we have a riser here and then we put another riser here and then we have our our tripod and our operator and that reduces that greatly reduces the amount of vibration that this one is going to get uh, it also helps me put stanchions around it so people don't keep putting their drinks on it um, and uh, and then um, we can weight these and do a lot of things to keep that even more stable but you want kind of a shorter platform. It's going to be a lot more sturdy as you kind of work through that so think about that the the, the head that you showed I mean it it probably works okay. Um, it's a pretty light head. The, so the weight of that head makes a huge difference in the stability of how you move. You can, I, can look at a, I can look at a camera operator and usually tell whether they're using a heavy head or a light head just because of the way that the camera moves back and forth and does it feel big or does it feel light. And, and so you have to be, it's very hard to make a, a light head look heavy, you know? So, um, so that's something to, to, to try to figure out there. The, um, uh, so, so just kind of take that into account. Uh, most of the time I get much heavier heads. Benro has some pretty good heavy heads. Uh, the, the problem really is Benro has a little bit of play right at the very beginning of your move. There's just a little bit of play in the, in the heads that bothers me a little bit. So I don't use them for a lot of, I use the, I use Benro heads. I have a lot, we've bought a lot of Benro, um, tripods for things that are st sturdy that I need to move around, but I don't use them when I need, when I think I'm going to have to do follows on it. Uh, I'm, then I'm leaning towards much bigger heads that I usually rent. Go ahead, Lucas. Yeah, also this uh, head is a flat head, so if you want to level it out, you would need to use the legs. Uh, so I'd recommend using something yeah. with a cup so you can uh, level with the cup. 100%. Uh, yeah, good, Courtney. Uh, yeah, I've been using the Manfrotto 526s. I, don't, I wouldn't call it a budget head. It's a head sticks combo. They're about 2700 bucks if you're... You might be able to find one new. It does have the ball leveling on the head, and it's uh, it's... It can handle a pretty heavy uh, camera. We've uh, put a camera on there with a with a prompter on it, a full size fifteen inch prompter, so it can handle that. Uh, and it's a it's a nice fluid head, and the tripod is uh, easy to easy to uh, fold down to a, a portable situation. It has a bag that goes with it, and it it goes up the normal. You know, it's a three three leg segment. Like like Alex said, I wouldn't try and get a tripod that goes up much higher than about. Uh, 
five, five and a half feet to six feet. Go ahead, Marty. So I, I have production companies who, you know, have been looking for the same thing. And what I've been providing for them that's worked well for them is a Manfrotto, uh, Manfrotto sticks. And you can find them with uh, like four section legs plus a riser in the center column, which raises the camera up above six feet. Now, as Alex said, you, you want to be careful about, you know, where you're putting this thing down on if you're on a on a raised floor or something where um, you know people walking by are going to shake the floor you need to be really careful about that and the head that they've been using is from ICAN uh, now you want to be be careful to match the dynamics of the head to the weight of the camera that you're using uh, larger heads for larger heavier cameras so match them up appropriately and um, you can find something that'll work and be very sturdy for you. Yeah, and uh, one that I am looking at is the Small Rig Free Blazer Heavy Duty Carbon Fiber Tripod. It's about $400. Um, I haven't used it yet, but Small Rig has gotten pretty good at doing things that are pretty high quality at a pretty good price. So for $400, it, it looks it looks like an Ace, like the old um, Sackler Aces, um, except that it's, it's a little less expensive even. Um, so if I was going to lean towards something, it seems to have all of those pieces there. Uh, next question. Next question from Glenn Moto in Richmond, Virginia. Is there a way to have a stream deck button tell the small ATEM constellation to put a certain input on a certain output? For example, put video input one on video output number four. Go, David. I'm not sure of the constellation. I don't have one of those. I do have companion running on an extreme, and the two video outputs there you can map via companion, uh, yeah, companion buttons. So I'm assuming you should be able to do the same with the constellation if they're following the same protocols. Yeah, it should be the, I think that what you'd want to use is the router protocol. So the, I know that we've used this in the past where we use the router protocols as opposed to the switcher uh, SDK to uh, reroute the ins and outs and that should that should get you there. So that's the where you want to look. I can't tell you exactly how to do it, but that's where you want to look is that is that router protocol for the ATEM and it should work with the constellation. We've done it in the past. Uh, next question. Gregory Wheeler from L. Ellicott City, um, has anyone used A1 to shorten a three-minute video to one minute with dialogue? Go ahead, John. I haven't tried anything that small, three minutes. Sounds like you could do it manually to get down to one, but uh, we usually do 15 minutes down to multiple one minutes for shorts. Have you done anything that small, Alex? Uh, I haven't. Op I haven't. Opus Dot Pro, by the way. It's when it's that short, I just do it myself. <laughs> going from three to one, I'm kind of like, I can make that decision. It's going from an hour to three minutes or an hour to eight minutes that, that I think that we're looking at. And again, we haven't used Opus as much only because we, we don't really need it to guide us towards that. We want to we, we just wanted to do very, very specific tasks. Um, so that's the part where AI, where we've had challenges is AI is really good at doing something if you just want to throw it in there. When you want it to be, do something very specific, we've been, you know, still working on figuring that pipeline out. Next question. Next question from Samuel Nordvik in Norway. Thoughts on the DSLR video shooter's cinema-style camera rig with a cooling fan built around the newly released Sony A7C II. I think this really plays on top of... <laughs> Sony's reputation for not only making lots of camera rigs, but making cameras that are sensitive to heat. I have found, by the way, um, on really, really hot days, I was gone yesterday, I came back and my my little Sony was turned off and I realized, oh, it was heat. <laughs> like I didn't, because I didn't, I turned off all the air in my in my office when I was gone. And so, so the, the Sony's are, their, their heat dissipation isn't great. 
<laughs> so anyway, uh, so I, I think that I don't know whether this one needs it or not, but it's not a good sign that, it, that, that someone's starting to already build fans. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, make sure you have it set for uh, priority and heat so that it uh, knows that it can can get hot. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, it's hard to see from the YouTube video, but it basically this adds, you know, a handle and a V-mount battery and cage and cheese plates to the bottom and top to amount a lot of uh, accessories, lint support, etc. So uh, whether or not you have a fan in it is you've got to be able to turn that fan off because if you're in an right. intimate situation at a quiet stage, you don't want to hear the fan. Yeah. And, and, you know, all of us add rigs to it. And like at this point, I mean, not all of us, but I will say that the first thing you do when you get a, when you get a new camera is add a rig to it and you add, you know, add these rigs on the outside of them and then you start to build out from there. Um, you'll find that you will, you'll go, I don't know what I would do with a, with a rig around my, around, you know, like some kind of small rig or, or tilta or blue, uh, you know, blue condor. I don't know what I would do with that or wooden camera if you really got the money. Um, and then you then you constantly are running out of places to put things. <laughs> you start turning. You just it, it's it's like a bag. You'll just keep filling it. Uh, next question. Next question from Jose Torres in Bayamon, Puerto Rico. Favorite microphone today, and why? Now go ahead, Jeff. For what purpose? Right, microphones are tools. Which what's your uh, what's the favorite tool in your toolbox? Well, it depends what you're going to do. If you're if you need to screw in a screw, you need a screwdriver. If you need a hammer. You know, if you need to pound a nail. So uh, my favorite microphone today, uh, let's go with a DPA 4006. Um, but that's for, uh, you know, classical music recording. So that's not probably what I'd pick to do for a voice. Uh, all around her, maybe an AKG 414, just because it's super versatile. Not my first choice in any situation. Good, Mitchell. Uh, Jeff, that's a 414 right below me here. I got a U87 behind me. But that, again, that's my personal choice uh, for what I'm seeing on the uh, panel. I love the Sennheiser 416 uh, shotgun mic, and I also love the Shure MV7. Very consistent results. Yeah, the the, uh, the one that I, I, I don't have a favorite mic, just as Jeff said, it depends. I have so many mics for so many different things that, you know, just depends on what you're trying to capture. Uh, but the one that I'm most excited about at the moment that I'm testing is the, uh, this is the core, um, let's see if I can get in front of my face there. This is a, a 8, 8. That's eight mics. Um, so the second order ambisonic um, that I'm testing. <laughs> I'm going to buy another blimp for it, though. I, t I keep on taking it outside like, oh, this will be great. And then you hear wind. So um, so I'm, I'm going to, it's going to be an expensive test because I, I can't, I tried to retrofit the blimp that I have for the Ambio and it's hard. <laughs> so, so anyway, so I, I think that I'm going to end up just getting a, uh, just getting another one for this one. But it's a, it's a great little mic um, that we're, that I'm excited about. I'm really getting How's into ambisonic. Go ahead. How's the noise floor on that mic? It's, uh, you know, I haven't had enough time to figure it out. So, you know, it's, it, it feels like it's higher than the Ambio um, from, from what I've already tested. So it might need a little bit of filtering. But, uh, but yeah, so I'm playing with that. And it does feel a little higher again than the, than the Ambio. But I haven't had enough time to get enough distance to it. So uh, next question. Frank Wilson from Jenar Bali, Indonesia. We have an upcoming dialogue retreat with about 50 participants sitting in a circle what is the best method so they can all chat without having to have handheld microphones? Also, some participants will need translation. No videos required. What's the best option? Good morning. So this is kind of uh, similar to the question we had earlier about conference room. Uh, so we have people sitting in a circle and you want to be able to pick them all up 
uh, without excessive room noise. So like an omnidirectional microphone in a room will pick up people from all directions, but it will pick up every sound in the room. Uh, another idea would be to maybe create a ring inside the circle of cardioid microphones and put them through an auto mixer. Uh, kind of kludgy, but um, it's better than an omnidirectional microphone. Um, uh, again, going back to the beamforming mic array um, <clears throat> possibility, uh, Shure in their STEM series has a tabletop beamforming microphone. It has nine microphones inside of it, plus the DSP to drive it. So it will automatically steer the microphone to the direction where people are uh, talking. And <clears throat> now I'm not sure about what the output is, uh, whether it needs to go to a control head or something like that, or whether it has a standard single channel XLR output. Um, let us know what you try and how it worked out. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, you said say video is not required or not used. Uh, I'd hire a couple of boom operators with uh, Sennheiser 416s on them to play each side of the circle, or maybe three and divide it up into thirds and uh, deal with it that way. And and a good boom operator can keep an eye out on who's going to speak next and watch out of the corner of their eye and see somebody who's about to speak or hear somebody and move their microphone to them and ping pong between the two microphones. Trying to manage 50 participants on individual mics is going to be kind of problematic, uh, require a lot of, uh, you know, wiring and automation. Uh, it might just be simpler to, if it's just a one one day event or something, hire some people to do it. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Jeff. Now, see, I, I took this a bit different than I think frames the recommendations, uh, specifically, Marty, with some of the mics. I, I take this, when I hear retreat, to mean that this is not broadcast. This is for a internal PA system so that all of the other participants can hear whoever's talking in this big giant circle. So I'm not sure if if some of those mics that are would be a bit far away are, are going to work well uh, with with PA speakers <laughs> right around the room. Also, um, I think it'd be you'd be hard pressed not to have uh, if you want a microphone something that is fairly close to the speaker. Uh, to enable this PA, and likewise, the the deal with translation, I take simply to mean the participants in the room will possibly need translation, and, and you know something very simple. Google Translate running on a smartphone does real time conversational translation, so you know that's an idea. But but maybe I'm I'm reading into this uh, not what is intended. Go, ahead, Jeff. I'm going to go with a no microphone, no PA answer, which is get the room to make sure the room has a low reverberation time so that speech intelligibility is good at, at the distance that you need to make a 50 foot, uh, uh, 50 participants in a circle, uh, get them close to each other. And then what you really need to do is establish etiquette like we do on here. If people are talking over other people, nobody hears anything. And that doesn't matter whether there's PA or not. But if there can be good rules about listening to the person who is speaking, all of this can happen without amplification. 50 people can sit in a circle and talk to each other just fine, even if there needs to be a person next to it who is interpreting. Go ahead, Lucas. Yeah, I think we, we do have, uh, we are missing some information to 
really answer this question but going back to the translation i'd also think that uh, the translator should in this case just be treated as a normal participant that's sitting next to the person that needs translation next question Next question is coming in from Eric Hers from Hartford, Connecticut. Thoughts on the new SIP Radius Max? Go ahead, Courtney. I can't really. I looked at this thing. I can't really figure out what it's running. It looks very much like one of our many PCs, uh, but it uh, it has maybe with built-in uh, SDI to uh, uh, HDMI conversion built into it because it does have some uh, um, 1080p. SDI inputs and outputs on it, and it has a couple of uh, you know a couple of Ethernet ports on it. But it and it does not say anywhere in the implementation what type of operating system it's running on. It's designed to be I a streaming it's tool. Low it's level, maybe like it's not. It's not an Maybe I mean, Linux, maybe or, Linux, or, or even. Uh, I mean, or, yeah, it could be even lower. Than or that, embedded yeah. Windows or something, yeah. but but not exposed necessarily. But I'm wondering if it's it's designed as a production collaboration tool if it ties into Zoom or if you have to use their custom software to collaborate with it. So it wasn't quite clear as to that. So I'm not sure what its yep. capabilities are. I go ahead, Elias. I've been getting into the world of this embedded development and my guess is it's probably running some sort of FPGA to do that low level, low latency video processing. And then like Alex said, they probably are running some embedded version of Linux that's just interfacing with the hardware and shuttling everything everywhere. My, that's, that's my best guess. Given that they're doing WebRTC outputs, NDI, NDIHX, like basically it's, it look, it looks like they're trying to make it be the Swiss army knife of converting from either SDI to something else or vice versa. It, uh, it looks compelling. I'd love to know more details about what hardware they're running and uh, a demo of it in a workflow. But it looks cool. Yeah, I, I'm always curious when people say ultra low latency, what that actually means to them. <laughs> so so yeah. if it's, you know, like ultra low latency to me says less than 200 milliseconds on per leg, you know, like and if anything more than that, I'm like, OK, that's low latency. Low latency gets you between, you know, 200, 200 milliseconds to about, uh, you know, four seconds is low latency and then everything else is just latency. <laughs> like, well, and the know, only just, way you're and the only way you're going to do that is by getting that low level embedded hardware. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly. What, that's, that's why I don't think a, you can have, you know, and, and one thing that I did see in the specs here was JPEG XS. And we know that JPEG XS is going to save you 30 to 60 milliseconds per, you know, as it goes through um, in that compression uh, protoca protocol. So it could be very, very interesting um, and be really fun to test their products. And so uh, we'll see if we can get a hold of one. I have some other needs where I might need that. <laughs> so, so anyway, so it'll be, uh, uh, we'll, we'll take a look at it. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael asked, how is the latency and performance of DVS for tracking synths to a DAW and playing virtual instruments in a studio similar to this one? And there's a link to it. Go ahead, Jeff. So DVS is Dante Virtual Sound Card. That is Dante using the built-in Ethernet of your computer to be the audio interface. It tends to have a larger latency than other dedicated Dante devices. I uh, just looked in mine and the settings for latency in DVS are anywhere from four milliseconds to 10 milliseconds. Remember, about a foot per millisecond sound through the air. So that's the feeling of you sitting 10 feet away from the amp. If you're playing an actual real keyboard through an amp, you put your amp 10 feet away. That's how long it takes that sound to get to you. You need to add to that the latency of your DAW. 
So DAWs can, you know, if you're running a 32 sample buffer, that's less than a millisecond. If you're running at a uh, 1024 sample buffer, that's over 20 milliseconds. So you've essentially gone to 30 milliseconds of latency with DVS and your your uh, DAW buffer. So the question kind of determines, you know, how how much buffer do you need in your DAW to get your virtual instruments to play successfully? And that'll depend on the power of your computer. With a really fast computer, running low latency uh, buffer in your DAW, running low level low latency in DVS, I think you'd be just fine. I don't think you would feel uh, uh, the latency of that performance more than anything else. Go ahead, Lucas. Yeah, uh, also it was mentioned before a lot, a lot of times you will need one physical data device anyway to get clocking and uh, just to compare the latency uh, of physical Dante devices like uh, PCIe cards with Dante they will go in the uh, microsecond latency realm so it's it's a lot less if you have those and not many switch hops next question Apple has just announced an event for September 12th called Wanderlust what do you think they'll be announcing Go ahead, John. From from what I saw on the net, there's there's three possible things here, and a combination of their sand based or dust based logo that was on the invitation, M muted colors, uh, titanium based on the pros using like the kind of particle that, that that they get titanium in, and then hopefully a periscope camera. That would be cool. Yeah, I'm I'm you know we'll we'll of course cover it, so you can expect us to do a second hour on. Uh, um, we'll, we'll be doing a second hour here, not a second hour, but we'll go into after hours. Um, so we do this thing <laughs> where we all jump into after hours and watch the show together. And we'll be doing that definitely for that. So expect that to happen. I believe it's, a, is it 10 a.m.? 10 a.m. on, on uh, the 12th? I believe it's typically 10 a.m. Yeah, so we'll looks, just assume, looks assume like that's that. 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Um, and uh, so we'll... Um, uh, we'll be we'll be putting that together there, uh, so uh, yeah. So stay tuned for that, um, and uh, you know we've got a lot coming up um, over the the following week here. And I'm just uh, looking for our, our back end crew to tell me what's going on for the next hour. <laughs> so anyway, sorry if I, if I look confused. Um, I don't I don't uh, I, you know we're, we're off a little bit on time. So um, yeah. So the uh, um, no, I'm not asking about that anyway. So uh, sorry for putting that up front, but I'm not getting updates in my panel chat. <laughs> so, so about what's happening next. So, um, so anyway, uh, so uh, a couple things coming up in the next uh, um, in the next half hour uh, or the next. I'm sorry, the, ne the rest of the week. I'm a little distracted here because we're we're missing a, a key pit point here. Um, I know, I I know that, but that's not the problem. Uh, so anyway, sorry, um, we're we're just, I'm just not getting updates on our second hour. Um, so uh, so you know, quick. Um, We'll talk about it later. Um, yeah, so a quick, a quick uh, reminder that uh, that IBC, of course, is coming up um, in the uh, in the second. <laughs> IBC is coming up. Sorry for for me being thrown off a little bit. Um, IBC is uh, is of course coming up on the fifteenth and sixteenth. We'll be covering for the. Uh, 
Uh, we'll be covering in after hours on, on the 15th and on 16th, we'll be having the actual uh, coverage that will take over this show. Uh, coming up the rest of this week, um, we'll have um, Wednesday, or today we obviously have Robert Scull just about to come up here. Um, David C. Smith will be here from Plate Pros tomorrow talking about how they build all those background plates um, to make all of this stuff work for broadcast. And we have an incredible crew here on Friday um, that keeps on stacking up. People ask, can I come in and talk about this? So the NDI, if you're interested in NDI, you should be here on Friday. We have world experts that are all going to be here talking about NDI. And so you definitely want to be here to uh, be part of uh, be part of that conversation. Uh, get your questions in early uh, because I don't think we're going to get to the bottom of them. Uh, so, uh, so stay tuned for that. Of course, Saturday and Sunday are general Q&A uh, for two hours on Saturday and two hours on Sunday. Sunday's a little bit more of the introspection day. And now we're going to jump into the second hour. Welcome back to the second hour. Uh, we are really excited to have Robert Scovel here um, to talk to us today. Starting in 1984, Robert Scovel has mixed over 3,500 concerts in the last 40 years. He spent 20 of those years uh, as the senior specialist for live sound products at Avid. Today, Robert has joined us to explain the difference in object-based uh, versus mono and stereo mixing and how powerful it is and when used in conjunction with immersive speaker deployment. Robert, welcome to the show. It is awesome to be here. How is everybody this morning? Oh, it's so great. Um, really excited to have you here. And I'm, I've worked on a lot of immersive shows, not so much in, in the concerts, but streaming them. And so this is a really, as a subject that's near and dear to my heart. I'm really excited to, to have this conversation with you. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, uh, I, so I guess from your perspective, why do we need immersive audio in a live show? Well, have we got an extra hour by chance? Yeah, exactly. well, okay. Take your time. Take your time. This, we're, we're we might really go down a pretty big here. rabbit hole let's, here. Let's, so. let's go. Let's go for it. Well, you know, I, I, the easiest one to start with when we start talking about it, and, and you know, kind of the live sound world kind of lives, kind of partitioned off in the world over here when we're talking about, you know, immersive and surround sound and stuff. And we have a tendency to conflate that with the studio experience or the post experience. And there, on one level, they're certainly similar, but there are some, uh, you know, there are some physics involved in live sound that present some real challenges to doing uh, stereo, like big stereo, like large scale stereo. That, that's the one that's kind of, that's kind of the elephant in the room that nobody ever really seems to want to talk about. You know, like when you're talking about large format concert, where you might have a a stereo speaker system, okay, right. that is up of 70 80 90 feet apart right what that does the, the the kind of the unseen thing is that anything that is in the in the center of that mix anything that is pan center right gets its positioning as a function of two speaker systems adding together right the left speaker and the right speaker. That's how it creates right. that phantom image, right? Right. So with that becomes, as we kind of move left to right in that stereo spectrum, we, we experience comb filtering. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You are offsetting one side in terms of distance to the other side as you move horizontally, okay? And the effects of that are terribly, just greatly exaggerated at that kind of distance. I mean, you're going to get comb filtering in the in full frequency, right? Full bandwidth comb filtering there. You're going to be experiencing comb filtering at the bass drum, the bass guitar, all the way up to the hi-hat. Right? So, you know, stereo, honestly, in my opinion, is not 
a great fit for large scale concert sound. It's not just, you know, this simple idea of just, I just want a big version of my control room monitors, even though, you know, we kind of treat it like that in terms of how we, how do we tune and how we mix and things like that. But there are some real, real issues with it. Now, is this, uh, is this enough, you know, where, I mean, obviously we've been doing it for a long time, you know, and the fans aren't necessarily in an uproar about it. But it could be better. It could well, definitely you know, be better. I, you know, I think about a lot about this is that is that the there's so many things when you when you think about these, there's so many things that people just put up with. Well, that that's just the way it is. Totally. And and it's it's just okay. When you and I work on this, you're like, Oh, it could be so much better. You know, but it's like they're just used to McDonald's and McDonald's seems yeah. fine and you're like, you know, you can cook steak better than that. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, like it doesn't it doesn't have to be that way. Well, here's where the bigger problem is, I think, is that, and, you know, I've I tried to explain this. I actually went through, experienced this firsthand on the last tour I did, the last stadium tour I did in uh, about a year ago now, where, you know, <clears throat> just because of the logistics, you know, I couldn't get the mixer, uh, my mixing position set up right on the center, right? I had to move off about four feet off center and mix. And I was mixing right in one of those cancellation zones. You know, and the problem, you know, the problem is that you can't sit there and listen to it. I, I If you were a fan, you could sit there and listen to that all night and be just fine with it. <clears throat> but when you're going to sit there and make tone and balance decisions for the entire room, now you've got some problems, right? I mean, if you're in a complete base cancellation zone, which is possible at that distance, instinctively as a mixer, you're just going to keep working to try to get the low end to sound like you think it should sound. And it's going to flood the rest of the room with bottom end. Right. You know, so <clears throat> that, that challenge of mixing in that large scale stereo, excuse me a second, I had to clear my throat. That challenge is very, very real for mixers for sure. Uh, and in terms of getting that done. So, you know, one of the things that object base and, you know, I, I'm almost anymore. I'm almost, almost loath to use the word immersive because it's so it's used for so many things when it's not really applicable. But when we talk about object mixing into a multi front array, right, that can actually solve this problem because you will have a center array, right, where all of the center components are coming right. out of. So all of those center mix ideas uh, and are coming so out of that center array. I What's think that? people really underestimate how important the center channel is. You know, I do a lot of 5-1, and I just went to see a concert at a theater, um, and yep. they were in stereo. And the problem is now I happen to be sitting in the center because there weren't a lot of people there at the, for that specific yeah. screening. Um, but but I was sitting in the center, but I moved around. Since there was like six people there, I, of course, I because I do this for a living, I, um, of course, <laughs> I, I, I wait. Feeling, yeah. Last 15 minutes of the show, I'm like sitting all, I just see me just moving all over. Like, what does it sound like in different parts of the theater? I don't get that lab very often. And um, and of course, on in a stereo on a five one system with stereo speakers, you know the the one side is weighted heavy. It's heavy right, heavy left. It's you know you have all these problems, and it just feels very flat. And that center speaker just kind of really brings that you know really pulls it all back to where it feels much yeah. more natural. Well, certainly in a music environment, right? If we're talking about doing concerts, et cetera, you know the center red probably the most important one of the entire bunch because it's going to carry the the most i'll say most important really what, what i mean you, is the highest amplitude components right. and what do you put bass, down that center vocals what, yeah exactly so yeah what are the right? what are the I mean, things most, you put in the center sure you're going to put those things in there now the challenge is 
in terms of the horizontal coverage, it has to cover the entire room. Right. So, right. you know, that, you know, when we solve one problem, you know, we obviously gain others, you know, so, uh, but if you can make that happen and then, you know, through placing objects in the other arrays, you, you, you end up with so little comb filtering in the entire thing. The clarity on it is breathtaking. Right. And the thing to always remember in live sound, right, this is the thing that gets really, really underestimated in live sound, is that if you have, if you are developing comb filtering, that comb filtering is existing in the acoustic space. It is affecting the actual acoustic footprint that you are listening to as well. It affects reverberation. It affects delays in the room. All of those things, tonally. And can you, you know, explain in, in for, Dolby for... language? You talk at you're talking tonal shift. You know that's why they always characterize it. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. Can you explain to folks a little bit about comb filtering? I mean, a lot of us in the panel know, know what that is, but when you're defining comb filtering in a live environment, what what does that mean for our listeners? Okay, well, uh, okay, let's go to comb filtering school here for just for a second. So let's take a very very simple example. Okay, so if I have a source, and then I have a duplicate of that source, right, and it arrives one millisecond later to where I'm listening one millisecond later, then there is going to be an absolute cancellation at 500 hertz, 1500 hertz, 2500 hertz, 3500 hertz, infinitum. And we have to remember that for the, for the listeners, a millisecond, it's a millisecond a foot, right? So it's literally a right. foot different, right? Literally a foot of difference, right? So, you know, that, I mean, obviously we have all kinds of challenges with that within consoles now, but that, you know, that's the one with, with speaker systems that we've lived with forever. So now we're talking about, you know, 90 feet, you know, where you might get, you know, I mean, 70, 80, 90 feet of difference between those arrays, you're getting comb filtering way down in the frequency band, right? Where you might get 10, 12, 15 feet of difference between the left side of the PA and the right side of the PA. Now, remember, this only really applies to the things that are panned center in that stereo mix, right? Because they're relying on both speakers, both you know, both the left and the right speaker to create their placement, right? Right. So with the center, you you get past you get past that with a, with with a center array that is handling those center components. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's amazing. That's yeah, really yeah. interesting. Um, yeah, that's why live sound is such an interesting sensibility for this whole concept of a you know immersive and object based mixing. You know, I mean, you know, it's going to be a big if it if it makes it, it's going to be a big transition not only for just show design, but also for the people that are operating the shows. Moving from you know mixing to a stereo bus or mixing to a mono bus to doing object mixing, which Essentially, there I mean, is no from, mix bus. Just right. going from 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 most people, from most pipelines, just going from stereo to five dot one is a is a lift. You know, like of what do right. I do with all this stuff, and how do I mean, and, and all the routing becomes different and much more complex. I mean, I literally just dealt with this yesterday at a show, and 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 you know, just the five one is a is a problem, and then as, as you start to add all the layers to it, um, now what are you, what what tools are you using to to execute this? Well, there, I mean, there are some turnkey systems that have been in play for a while now in live sound. You know, uh, obviously, L Acoustics with Elisa. They're uh, kind of the, they're kind of on the front end of that. I mean, it seems like they're the furthest along of the bunch at the moment. I, I would say either them or DNB for sure. DNB Soundscape. I, I was telling somebody earlier here. You know, I, I saw the DNB uh, Soundscape demo at Infocom this year, and I went up and told the guys afterwards. I said, "Okay, that's the best immersive demo." for live sound that I've seen since this come on this came online. I mean they just absolutely crushed it uh in there. 
presentation. So, uh, and you know, I mean, it, they cover a lot of bases with soundscape. It's, it's, it's really, really good. Uh, but those, like I said, those are kind of turnkey systems, you know, where the speaker manufacturer is also manufacturing the DSP processor, uh, the spatializer, so to speak. Uh, you know, Meyer is doing a similar thing with SpaceMap Go, uh, which is a really cool little program uh, that really has its genesis in uh, uh, LCS, I believe, was the, uh, maybe, I might be getting the acronym wrong there from all their theater work. But then there are other uh, kind of standalone products like uh, Flux and uh, who was the other? Astral Spatial was making their own DSP box for a while. But I mean, you know, you can kind of take any speaker manufacturer and turn it into an immersive environment. But there's always another piece of that as well, right? Is also also the console, which we have to be able to distribute all these uh, objects up to the spatializer and let it do its thing, you know. Right. And what and what consoles are you using right now for this? Well, I mean, I've been I worked for Avid for 20 years and, you know, helped design and conceive and design that whole console line. So I, I still am on Avid. I, I still believe very, very firmly in that product. Now, when you're so, and, and, and you're talking about going through Pro Tools? No, 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 no. no. There's no Pro Tools involved here. Okay. No. And, and what might and, be? Go ahead. Yeah, go, sorry. Yeah, go, no, go ahead. I was going to say, you know, at some point here, I, I put, I have a couple of slides from a presentation yeah, that I let's did. Go ahead, let's go ahead and throw those slides up. Uh, a f- couple of years ago now. So it might be worth pulling out. This might yeah, just let's do it. Uh, visualize it for people here. Let me just a minute here. I'll get it up where I can. Uh, let's see here. I think I need to share screen first. Let's see. We're going to. That is a great office, by the way. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I, just, I just zoomed up. My wife would disagree. Box. I think you've been a little. Bo- you've been in a little box for for the, the whole show. And then I looked over at your big box, and I was like, "Wow, I need to. I need. I need to oh, up my game." I think, I think I need to share a different screen here. Sorry, guys. I rehearsed this yesterday and blew it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's try this, and then do this. <laughs> Oh, well, we can see it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oops, sorry. Uh, get out of there. Get to presentation mode, Robert. Okay. There we go. All right. Can everybody, can you guys see that okay? Yeah, we can see it just great. Okay. So, you know, I, this is just really to kind of talk about. Uh, Absolutely kind of the spatialization aspect of mono versus stereo versus uh, uh, immersive and, you know, the kind of some of the things that go along with it. So obviously here you can see a whole bunch of sources coming into the console and it goes to a standard PA processor and then it's going to go up to a mono speaker system, right? <clears throat> and in this mono speaker system, we're going to put all those elements, you know, kick, snare, hat, rack, all of those kind of things. But, you know, obviously it's in a very kind of one-dimensional environment there. That's going to rely, if it's, especially if it's a complex arrangement, it's going to require us to be really on our game in terms of dynamics, processing, equalization, everything to get this to read. I, you know, I've, I've, I've kind of built this horrible metaphor in my mind about it. You know, it's almost like you're looking at the forest here, but all the all the trees are stacked, are you know, stacked right in front of you. They aren't spread yeah. out left to right. And there are birds in the trees. 
okay, identify the bird and where it's coming from, which tree it's sitting in. You know, right. I mean, it becomes very, very difficult to do. Well, and I find that it's, I think of it as, I mean, in some cases for me, when I'm doing working on streams related to immersive is, is muddiness. You know, like I just ha- find that mono is really muddy, uh, you know, stereo becomes less muddy and then immersive starts to really, I feel like I can hear everything that, yeah, that's around yeah. me. Well, you know, and I mean, I says for, you know, if you look back to the golden age of mono, you know, when it was all going on, yeah. The, think about the music that was coming out of it, right? It was really, for the most part, very simple arrangements yep. or very, you know, it, the, the musical arrangement was really built toward mono, you know, where an orchestration would sound great because all of those elements are in their place sonically, right? Yep, absolutely. So, you know, this is obviously uh, a challenge if you're going to have everything coming out of this thing, uh, of this mono array, right? So... So if we go to stereo now, which, you know, I always, I, I'm always fascinated by stereo. I, I've done so much, so much mind work on stereo <clears throat> because, you know, if you go back to the earliest days of stereo and kind of why it was created, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, it was originally kind of created to replicate orchestra, you know? So if you think about the sound field of an orchestra, right? It's a very wide sound field. Like if you're looking at an orchestra, you know, you hear the violins off to the left, you hear the the oboes and the cellos off to the right, you hear the percussion coming from the upright, you know, all those things. It's 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 it can be a mono experience when you're listening to it, but stereo was kind of created to help that for the listener where you could spread it out a little bit. But keep this in mind, in and of itself, no source, no source in history is stereo, right? Everything only comes from one spot. That violin is only coming from one spot. That oboe is only coming from one spot. It's not a stereo, you know, thing. So stereo was really kind of helped to just kind of spread things out and get some width in it, right? Right. To help us do that. But obviously in in a small environment, and when I say small, living rooms, even, you know, theaters I'll put down into that, that small, you know, the offset that's happening there with those center positions isn't that great you know it's only it, it's only down you know into the the mid band really and so you could right. probably get away with it there so in terms of here you know uh with stereo you know obviously they they're going to create uh, what's called a db down point for that center position and this is really primarily so that we can pan something from left to right without it jumping forward right we can feel a very smooth transition if we move something from left to right so that's unique to stereo but then once we start adding things to it as a function of the pan knob, right, we have things that are more or less weighted left or right. Like, as you can see there, the kick and snare, the bass, uh, the vocals are all equally balanced to the left and right if if we're positioning them there in the center. But those are a function of that left and right speaker adding together. So offset matters here. Distance offset matters here. If I'm sitting in my control room back there mixing, and I move off, you know, uh, off center a little bit, it's probably only comb filtering down. I mean, you might get one filter in there at 5K. So maybe one inch of difference if I move my head off the center, right? So I can I can kind of deal with that, but that's not the experience here. Now, the other, I've had people ask this question before, you know, talking about mono. It's like, well, why don't you just run the stereo mono? And But you end up with the exact same problem, right? Which is, even if I put all of this in both speakers at the same time, now I still have the comb filtering problem. I still have the offset between left and right because all of those instruments are now being created by two sources, right? Yep. 
So, you know, that horizontal problem is still in play there, still there. All right. So as we move to, you know, an immersive uh, situation here, and again, I'm almost loath to use the word immersive here. You know, this is kind of a front field object mix. Here, you you know, you're taking in all of these sources, you know, in, in live sound world right now, this might, this could be upwards of 128 sources into a console, maybe more. And you're going to break it into objects and place it in this front field, right? And we might even place it immersively. We might do it in surround, but there, we'll talk about some challenges with that uh, to begin with. So, you know, as opposed to mixing to a bus here, when you turn up the fader, it immediately goes to the speaker system, right? It, there's, it doesn't have to go through a stereo bus or a subgroup or anything. It can, but it doesn't need to. And, you know, in this world, the thing that I found fascinating in this world is when I started doing mixing in it a little bit was how almost meaningless stereo sources seem to become, you know, right. It was like, well, what does stereo even mean in this environment? You know, you're really just creating an audioscape here, you know, a left to right audioscape. Are you building stems here to, to send to the spatializer? You can. Right. You can, you certainly can. And, you know, for people that want to get up to speed quickly on it, usually that's what I'll suggest is like, okay, well, let's build an LCR bed or a 5.1 bed, and then you can just add objects to it as you need it. Right. Uh, you know, it can make, that can make it a little more streamlined. But, you know, the the process or the the idea of that center array and its supporting in, arrays outside. But in this case, you're not, you're, not, you're not creating the beds there. You're having the objects in the, in the, in the S6, uh, S6L, and then mm-hmm. it's sending those objects to the spatializer? Correct. Yeah. Wow. So it's usually, you know, the spatializer can accept it by Maddie or AVB or Dante, you know, any of those things, which are high channel counts, right? You can get up to, like I said, you know, I think the highest channel count we got right now is probably 128 directly into the processor. And then on, on the SSL console, although there's all the consoles are doing this a little differently, but uh, you know, you can do all the positioning from the console. You don't have to actually go into the DSP to do the positioning on it. So, uh, right. you so you're delivering hundred and up to 128 channels to the the DSP spatializer. Correct. Right. Right. So, and that's and for those listening, that, that so that's each position or each where each object is. Right. I mean, it's it you know so it because now is it all 128 or is there some protected for beds? Uh, it's it's completely up to you. Okay, I mean, yeah. you, you just you do the workflow however you want to do it. I mean, if you want a completely discrete. Uh, object mix, you can right. take every input in the console and send send it directly to the spatializer and spit it back out into the however many speaker outputs you need, right? Right. And, you know, another one of the kind of the not obvious things to, uh, like the, I think layman's or, you know, would look at it this way is like, well, why do you need all those speakers? Well, the the hidden thing is here is there's nothing ever coming out of more than one speaker at a time. Or if it is, it's very light, right? There, it's not like we have all those speakers on and there are all the inputs going to the, all of them at the same time. You're being very selective about where you position these objects in that field. And the resolution that you have for that, the resolution you have for the positioning, and the resolution in this sense plays to tonal shift as well, is dependent upon how many speakers you have. Right? If I had 10 speakers across there, it would be the same object mix, but it would have higher resolution in terms of tonal and tonal shift and positioning. And where the and where the mind hears it, you know, I, I was in a in a a theater that has about 180 speakers, you know, spread out across it, and um, uh, using kind of a hybrid of a Myers system, um, mm-hmm. and um, and 
they had a bird flying around in it. And I was yeah. just, and I was, and I was just struck by, you just really felt like the bird was in the building. Like it was, right. you know, because there was so much resolution. And, and again, it's because that you have one, at any given moment, you have one speaker that has most of that sound, but it's, but it's, it's the other speakers that are kind of telling, you know, with very soft versions of that, that are telling you where it is as well. Well, it, well, positionally, as you move it, it will shift from one speaker system to the other. Like that, right. that's what allows you to really, really localize it. If it was coming out of all the speakers at the same time, you would have an impossibility to localize right, right, right. it. Right. So maybe here, let's go to this. Maybe this will help this discussion. So in terms of object and uh, immersive, right, we're, uh, here is a front field again. And we don't think panning here, right? We just think positioning, right? So uh, here I'm going to position some of my main elements in that center array. I might I might shift the drums off a little bit here. Uh, you know, keyboards off to the left, guitars off to the right, et cetera, right? Mm -hmm. So in this situation, you know, keep go back to that comb filtering discussion we were having where the most important elements here, think about the range of things, kick, snare, bass, and vocal. I mean, those are three of the most important things that we're going to have in that mix. And tonally, they're going to be very pure in the room. They're not right. going to suffer any of the effects of the comb filter, right? Now, some of these that we kind of have positioned in between, you know, we might want to do that. We might just want to space them all the way out to the other, that next array to keep them positionally or tonally clean, right? Mm -hmm. Or if we wanted to add more speakers in between this, then we could make that, in terms of tonal shift, very, very clean. You follow me there? Yep, absolutely. Now, the challenge, here's the here's the big one for live sound. Because, like, like I said, once we solve one problem, we come up with another one, right? So the problem at a, at a big live setting here is one of time offset, right? If this If this five position array is 150 feet wide... Right. Well, if I'm on the left side of the arena, I'm still hearing that guitar on the right. I, I can make sure that coverage is still getting guitar all the way across the arena. Right. But now it's arriving later than that guitar yeah. in the center. Already got guitar by like that. 150 milliseconds at least. Right? Yeah. By a good chunk. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the irony of it is it plays to clarity, but it hurts impulse. Right. It hurts music impulse because it sounds like we've disjointed the instruments a little bit. So, you know, the same thing would apply for bass and drums there. You know, obviously in the center of the arena there, everything is going to be impacting you at about the same time. But if I'm off to one side, you know, that guitar one, if I'm off on the left side, the guitar one is actually going to be arriving just a little bit earlier than the drum kit and the vocal. Right. right. So. And so it's one of the challenge is one of propagation. And it's really one of my goals here over the next however many years is to find the boundary for this. Like, I want to take this out into a stadium and see if we can make this work. Right. I, I think from a clarity perspective and a tonal shift perspective, it will be unbelievably great. Right. Uh, but I'm, I worry about the impulse portion of it. Right. Are we segmenting are we kind of disjointing the music a little bit uh in terms of uh just impulse etc yeah. so you know we kind of you know in concert sound we especially i think you know we kind of live uh in what we've done in the past <laughs> it's hard to get us to go forward I, everybody does i mean I like everybody the, the hardest part that you have is that everybody has like well this is the way we did it no one complained a lot about it and you know if we change it and we do something aggressive and it doesn't work then everybody you know then there's lots of meetings you know and so um so i think that's always the, the hard part is, is getting past the past <laughs> yeah I, you know i it's been funny to watch it 
and kind of stay abreast of it in the recording world and uh uh you know the other i won't say the post world so much but the the recording world uh where there's been kind of a pushback on it you know everybody's kind of you know there are people that have claimed it's a money grab it's you know all of this stuff and they again they have a tendency to kind of make it a binary argument you know it's like well it's either this or stereo this will never replace stereo things like that or right. you know we're going to go back and take a piece of music that was clearly mixed for mono or stereo and we're going to break it apart and see if it works in immersive and use that as a validation for immersive it's like well wait hang on a minute yeah can we can we think a little broader than that i mean I we don't the have hard to part the hard part is, is that people don't hear it that often. And so like, yeah. I, I just feel like, you know, I hear, you know, I'm sitting in, um, you know, a soundstage in, in, in Los Angeles and, and listening to it in immersive with a, a lot of speakers. And when you hear that, you're like, oh, this is the most amazing thing ever. And then you go, it, what happens though, is that I think it does poison your mind after a while for people like you and I <laughs> of when you listen to stereo, it sounds really flat because you're not, you, you know, but for people who are just used to stereo, that's, yeah. And stereo, you know, the thing is stereo is still going to have its application. It's it's still yeah. going to have its place. Mono still has its place. I mean, if you look at this, it's just a series of monos right. that are put into play. That, the, here, you want some real irony for this. I, I, I actually stripped this out of the presentation. Maybe I should have left it in there. But if you go back to what the Grateful Dead did with the wall of sound. Right. This is actually very, very similar to right. that concept. Right. No, absolutely. Now, how do you deal with, you know, do you, are you, you, mostly what we're talking about right now is left, right, center, right, or an array that kind of spreads that out. Um, the, I think, how, can you get over behind? Is that something that is, that well, you can if you want to do it, right? So right. let me carry on with the, this piece of it. If you wanted to put, you know, surround in place, yep. <clears throat> then obviously you can uh, place objects out there as well. Right. So, you know, if you wanted to push object out there, but here's, again, here's the challenge in live sound. And again, it's one of propagation, right? Where we're disjointing uh, the music a little bit. You have to be careful what you put out there. I mean, you could change the entire rhythm of a song out there if the distance is far enough for some of the listeners. Right. Right. And we're talking about, you know, shifts of, you know, it could be upwards of 100, 150 milliseconds here. Well, you know, in some cases, how do you deal with, like, so you look at a concert that's, and then it gets more complicated because you have, like, the, the the current Metallica concert is all in the round. And they yeah. have people on the inside of the donut and the <laughs> outside of the donut. And then they have all these towers that are going up around it. And, and it, it, you know, just from the that audio propagation process of your, you're not, you're not serving a one directional, you know, or a two directional issue. You're really in that in, in many dimensions all at the same time. Well, I, you know, I, I'm going to see it on Friday. So maybe, I, maybe we'll check back in in a week. I'll give you my report. Yeah. <laughs> but, it looks, it's really yeah. complicated. You know, it's, 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 it's very impressive looking. Um, but the, you know, the audio, I'm not sure where the best audio is in that, in that. Um, well, here's layout. the thing with it. And, and I'll say this from my experience of doing the, in the round in the eighties, you know, one of the benefits you get from that is that everybody becomes, everybody sits in the near field of the PA now. Like they, everybody sits in a common kind of geometry, you know, you end up with short throws everywhere. Right. And, you know, you can create some. So you're really, uh, and are you, you know, doing, some, are you doing it directionally at that point? Like really kind of focusing where these, these. Yeah. You're, you're relying on some pattern control there for sure. And, you know, you wouldn't want super wide coverage there because, <clears throat> you know, you're talking about when they got eight towers, something like that, right. where you're sitting, you're going to hear one tower and seven competing towers. 
Yeah. Absolutely. Right in that space. So, you know, that can, that can get dicey. I, I, although I've heard really great reports from it, I heard it sounding great out there. So I can't wait to get out and see it and hear it in that yeah, environment. No, but my, my point of it being that you have to be careful what you put into this surround environment versus this, you know, this front environment because of the rhythmic relation to it, right? The rhythmic relationship to it. I, I, I'll tell you this story. I've told the, the story a couple of times just to put some spin on it. So when I was working with Rush in the 80s, you know, we wanted to do a, a, a pseudo kind of quad thing with them. And I put together this uh, speaker system that could hang in the back corners of the arena. <clears throat> we called it the ass, which was the alternate speaker system. <laughs> in the back. And we had, you know, I had a quad panner on a pair of quad panners on the console. And I could at in, kind of at a moment's notice could take anything and move it to any position in the room. Right. obviously right so when we were in rehearsals kind of getting ready to go on it and setting it up i, I mean I, I had never done it before you know this was you know 1988 89 something like that and i was really kind of playing around with it seeing what i thought was going to be possible and uh you know for rush obviously neil pierce's drum solo is a big part of the yeah. show so i thought oh well, this will be great we can do some really really cool stuff here so you know he started his thing and i started moving some things out into the the alternate yeah. speaker system. And he kind of stopped and we had a little meeting, you know, and he goes, <laughs> I, I don't know. It like the stuff back there is, is coming up really late. C is, can you put some delay on it? <laughs> oh, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> delayed is a target. Yeah, and Life I kind of had sense. to stop and I was like, well, I don't think we want to make it later. Do we, you know, so yeah. we kind of had that moment, but I mean, yeah. that's to give you some insight into how great that guy was. Oh yeah. So, we 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 carried on with doing it like we had part of his drum solo be happening in all four quadrants at the same time but every and you know that distance was not consistent night to night i mean it was relatively consistent but you know there are times when it could get closer or farther yeah. he had this little setup in the drum solo where he would hit a couple of drums and wait hit a couple of drums and wait and he was locking into that propagation oh. time and then he would play around it Oh my right. Gosh. I mean, it was just amazing. I, I was like, he's changing the drum solo depending upon this time here. And so he's he's literally customizing his drum solo to the venue. To the know, venue. Like, That's exactly right. Oh I mean, it was it was awesome to see. But the point of the discussion is that, you know, especially when we're talking about things rhythmically, something that, you know, is, you know, that is leaning on the one or the three or the two or the four. That can get very, very messy in surround. You have to be very careful what you put out there. Like we, like the things that we put out there were not really time sensitive. A lot of pads, a lot of we could put arpeggios out there as long as they were moving. You could get away with put, right. putting arpeggios in the in the surround, et cetera. So you just have to be judicious with it, you know. Yeah, absolutely. We've got a lot of questions stacking up. A couple from our panelists, and then and then a couple and a lot coming in from the from our audience. So um, Jeff, you got a you got a question? Robert, thank you so much for being here. This is awesome. Uh, my question is about uh, just thinking about that front uh, array where you can place things and objects. Um, how do you handle low frequencies? Are these all full range arrays, including subs, so you can have that? And then not only the time, I'm thinking again about that person sitting off to the side where the left array is much closer than the far right array, not only time is an issue, but isn't amplitude an issue 
Um, and do you get that the mix is then thrown off because they hear while they're still hearing that far right array, it's not only later, but it's also quieter. So sorry, two questions there. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, I'll address the second one first. I, that is true. And it's true today in stereo as well. So uh, I, I, I'm not as concerned about the amplitude portion of it. That that part doesn't scare me as much as the rhythm. I, I think we're, uh, I mean, I think we're way more sensitive to volume than we are time. I think the average fan is way more sensitive to volume and tone than they are time. Uh, but I, that doesn't scare me as much. I, I, again, that's kind of why I was saying, I want to get out and test the boundaries of this. There's got to be a point where it kind of breaks and you're going to go, okay, that's just simply too far away, you know, where it doesn't work. So, did, did that answer your question? <laughs> did, what was the second, the first part? Uh, about uh, low frequencies. Are these full oh, range with yeah. subwoofer each so of these yes, five these arrays? Would all be uh, full range arrays. Although you might want to cross them over into a subwoofer, I, I'll say full range. But usually on these systems, when I've seen these uh, deployed so far, they will have a center location of subwoofer flown above it, and then also one on the ground to pull attention down. So, uh, but it's usually centrally located. You know, the, the the great thing about this concept is the localization that can happen. That that is to me is the really really big thing, and I think it plays into why. The clarity improves so dramatically with this as well. I, I'll give you this example. I went to see, um, uh, oh, I'm spacing the name. I'll come back to it. Uh, but it was a show in uh, at the Santa Barbara Bowl, um, and they had two drummers. And I can tell you as a mixer, I have mixed shows with two drummers, and it is the hardest thing to do I've ever done in my life. Uh, because they have to just be so locked in and you kind of have this situation where you have two impulses trying to happen at the same time. And if they don't, it kind of gets floppy, you know, all of the bad things that happen from this. But this act had two drummers and they used the immersive to put them left and right. Like the on stage, they were left and right. So like the kick, kick snare that you see here would obviously move over to the left. Another set would move over to the right. And I would just tell you, it was one of the greatest audio experiences I've ever had where, I, I mean, I could, if one of the drummers was doing rudiments, I could tell which one it was. You know, if he was doing any kind of grace noting on the snare, it's like, okay, that's the guy over there. It was just so easy to tell those two drum parts apart. And man, it made the show really, really work. It was just awesome. So localization is a big thing. And, you know, we talk, I'll carry on with the, I'll throw this in there just... So I can hopefully make it go. Come on. There we go. Yeah. So if we're talking about an object. It's much more like, like it would be if you're actually in, in, a, in a room without amplification and you've got those two drummers. It's like. Yeah, very much so. I mean, it's just like a bigger version of that. But, but one of the cool things that we can do in immersive uh, is use a tracker, right? So if we had a vocal here, <clears throat> now if we put a tracker on that, person singing as they move left to right we could have them have it move in the pa and, system and right? what trackers are, are you using for that uh i, I think the probably the most popular one is the black tracker i think, uh, I think that's what it's called black yep. tracks yeah. yep and you know think about the possibilities for that right there uh, that alone we, with rap music right where you might have two three four five people rapping where if, you know, depending on what side of the stage they are on, that's where your attention is drawn with the audio. You could you could easily pick out anybody in the song and know who's doing what. 
I mean, that, that part of it is super, super effective uh, and immersive. So, you know, I, I, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm a big fan of this. I, I hope we can make it happen. Absolutely. Marty. Oh, so many questions, so many questions. <laughs> I, I probably have some. I probably should submit my own questions here. That's what I should. Well, well, let me let me go backwards. Let me start from the end and go backwards. So, um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, so you addressed uh, propagation delay and the timing issues and and all that. Um, yeah. So, first of all, I, I want to make sure I understand uh, fully understand the the five speakers you have across the front. Every one of those speakers is covering the entire audience area, right? Well, it, it's certainly responsible for 180 degrees across and out, okay? I, it, obviously, it can't cover behind. And there, that's a whole another discussion of how we build fill with this, uh, you know, maybe front fill or side fill. How do we get around to the backside of an arena and still give people, they're not necessarily going to have an immersive experience, but they, at least they should have a good experience back there, you know? So it's it's combinations of, uh, you know, different uh, ways of doing that. I, I, this is part of a, about a three-part presentation that I did on this a couple of years ago. And that was, that covered one entire presentation of how to do fill work with this. And I think just for a reference, that, that those, those presentations went out on our email. So if you were listening oh, to this, you can, um, you can go look at those. Those are about three, three or four hours of content there. I think um, that. Yeah, I think it was, I think really it was good. three. Yeah. It was probably a little over three hours of content. I was doing that in a series called the lab. Yeah. Yeah. Really good. Uh, right. Because I, I was uh, working towards, there are different shapes for, for audience seating. You know, there's the narrow yeah. wedge, like for a concert hall or for an opera house, pretty traditional. And, and I can see that being pretty easy to cover. But then you have these rooms where the audience wraps around the stage. You may have yeah. 140 degrees of seating or more. Yeah. And, and, you know, that would be a real challenge to to do this. And then when you have... Uh, immersive sound where you have speakers in the back and the sides and people are sitting close to those speakers and farther away from those speakers so you have the inverse square factor coming in where somebody yeah. sitting further is not going to hear that speaker as loud right well it's it, you know it, again it's going to put some interesting dynamics on speaker design going forward because, you know, traditionally, when we're working in stereo, traditionally, what we have designed is relatively narrow coverage. Like we want narrow, tight coverage that we can kind of create pies and not have interaction between the arrays. This is the antithesis of that. What we need here is five really wide covering arrays, right? We need, we need wide coverage. If we had a speaker system up there that could cover 180 degrees, we'd take it. So is that going to develop you know, speaker manufacturing over time. I'm sure it is as this starts to take hold. The other piece of it, you know, that you were talking about with speaker people close to speakers, et cetera. Again, then we're going to go back to pattern control, right? We don't want to have a lot of leakage behind it. We want to have it very focused on a very specific portion of the arena. You know, I, again, I kind of go back to my days with Rush here, you know, before I departed from them, I was getting ready to do a tour with them right before they came back after they had a long hiatus. And I, it, this was really early on in this. This wasn't even a thought yet, uh, but I was going to do it in 5.1. I thought, well, there's consoles out there that can do 5.1 busing now. And kind of the, the concept that we came up with, which I think will will play here sometime in the future, is that you're going to have an audience segment. You're going to have a piece of the audience geometry 
that is optimized for the surround. And you sell that as a value add on the ticket. Yep. Right. And then you, you don't necessarily say you're not sitting in the surround area, but you know, if it doesn't say surround on your ticket, 5.1 surround on your ticket, you're not in the surround zone. And we had kind of had it kind of set up and designed where it was going to be the floor and the first, uh, lo- what, do you, what do you want to call it? The first set of seats that come up off the floor, right? All of those seats were going to be in the 5.1 zone. So, you know, that was kind of the idea there. And I, I think as we move forward here, that, that kind of is going to take place. Well, and, and many in ways they're industry. already charging more for those. <laughs> you know, well, so you would you charge can, more for them. Right. You, yeah. you absolutely would. You know, that, that would be a value add. So as if we need more reasons to raise ticket prices, right? <laughs> oh, man. That's a whole other second hour. Uh, yeah, go, ahead, go ahead, Lucas. Yeah, thank you very much for being here. This is uh, great. Um, you um, touched on not really having a master or main bus or stereo bus anymore. Um, many mixes tend to use that to do compression or yeah. something else. Um, yeah. How do you deal with that, not having this gluing effect perhaps right right well uh, i would say uh, to the mixers that i advise on i say keep in mind that gluing effect takes place when everything is coming out of the same speaker right that that is a big piece of how that compression works in that situation but you're absolutely right where we are not to the point yet where i could equalize this as a mix or i could compress and limit it as a mix i think we will get there i think as a function of dsp uh the DSP processors at some point will allow us to do this. Uh, but uh, right now we can't do that. You got it. But that said, I'll say this after doing some mixing in this environment, it seemed to require way less of it. Right. Like, you know, because the, the clarity and the separation is there to begin with, I, I seem to rely way less on what I would consider a system EQ or a system compression or, you know, anything like that. But that said, we will definitely get to a place if this takes hold where we can do that within the DSP. I'm very confident of that. We could probably get very close to it today in digital consoles where we could do some creative linking to processors, et cetera, you know, channel processors and get something close to it. So, and there's nothing that says you couldn't do that kind of thing. Like, you know, we're, we're talking about completely discrete objects here, you know, 128 objects up into the thing. Well, maybe you take your drum kit and you do it as an object, or maybe you do kick, snare and toms as an object and compress that however you need to do it. If you want to do parallel compression on it, go right ahead. You know, it was one of the things we designed into uh, the Avid SXL with this in mind, where you can, you can do parallel compression on every object, right? Every input, every output of the console has its own capability of doing parallel compression and it was aimed right at this mindset let's jump into the questions from the producers first question, question coming in from Tromso, norway ronnie hofsey wants to know in a live concert stage setting everything seems to be focused on splitting audience and 50 percent parts in front of each ba's left and right stack array standing in either side will almost never give a stereo experience will objects ever work here and how yeah, I, I actually think objects work a little better here, believe it or not. Uh, and again, it has to do with coverage, right? Where uh, the center portions of this front field that we see here are covering all of the arena. So, uh, yeah, you can get fooled in stereo where you get something that sounds big and fat and juicy right in the center of the arena, but it may not sound like that 
off to the left. You know, you don't have that summation that is happening there, et cetera. So I, I don't know if I, I necessarily agree that we're, we're partitioning in it, partitioning off the audience. Uh, you know, really what I'm looking for when I'm setting up PA coverage is not even necessarily equal amplitude. I'm looking for equal tonal response, regardless of where you're sitting in the room. If you're sitting far away, you're sitting close, it's got the same tonal aspect to it, the same frequency response. So hopefully, you know, we get that. Uh, you'll have a good experience off to the left and right. I, I, I will say this, I, I, as after being in this business for a long time, I think concert sound today is as good as it's ever been. I, I, you know, we do more with concert sound today than we've ever done in terms of coverage and spectral. You know, it's just, I mean, if you go, <laughs> I, just, I might get some pushback on this. If you go to see a really bad sounding show, chances are it's not the PA system's fault. <laughs> uh, next question. From Mickey Makachor in Manila, Philippines, we have discussed Dolby's recent push into the live sound reinforcement world. How can the use of Dolby's tool sets and specifications help in sound reinforcement? Well, I, Dolby's, you know, trying to make a play in this space. They're trying to make their push into live sound. Um, I, I've been in touch with them on a number of occasions talking about it, and I'll, I'll go on record at here as saying I'm all for it. I want Dolby to survive and thrive in our space. And uh, I think if for no other reason, I hope this comes across the way I want it to come across here. I think if for no other reason, because they have such an incredibly powerful brand right now, you know, if, I mean, if you're going to do a value add to a ticket that's going to relate to an immersive experience, how much money are you willing to pay for a Dolby experience versus a, an Elisa experience? The average fan has no idea, if I said the word Elisa to them, they have no idea what that is. Absolutely no idea. But if I said Atmos to them, they know what that is. They absolutely know what that is. Partially thanks to Apple. <laughs> partially, well, of course, partially thanks to Apple. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the flip side to that is, <laughs> if they don't have a good experience at the consumer level, why are they going to pay more at the concert level? I mean, they got to be able to connect the dots there and say, yeah, man, I cannot wait to hear that in a big place. Absolutely. Next question. Adrian Watkins from Wellington, New Zealand. What is the example of a job where you need to use all 128 channels? Oh, I mean, I could certainly think about it from, you know, I, I don't know if I have a music, a, a music job where you would have to use all 128 uh, but you know, certainly any kind of theater production, et cetera, that's used in object. I mean, object base is so beautifully laid out for theater, man. I could do that. I mean, it would just work so fantastic there. Uh, but again, it's just down to the job. It's down to the music. And, and I'll, I'll take this opportunity to say this, you know, we're all, all of us, manufacturers, users, even fans, we're all still trying to figure this out on what we're going to do with it, how we're going to use it. And I, I actually, my, my take on this is that I believe the artists are going to drive this into the market. When artists start going into the studio, into a studio that is set up to record for an immersive mix, and they start creating music with immersive in mind. No different than when artists started creating music with stereo in mind. When they start creating music with immersive in mind and get that out into the field and, get, and let people experience it. And then have the realization of, wait a minute, I can I can do this immersive thing live too? Then you're going to see them do it. Because they hold the keys to it. They hold the financial keys to it. They hold the artistic vision to it. 
even the production vision, like, I mean, doing this kind of speaker system would require some adjustment of how we build the look of shows now, right? This is going to eat up a lot of visual space high. So, you know, all of those things would have to be to be adjusted and nobody has the stones to be able to do that right out of the gate. The artist has to, has to take that and run with it. So I'll use, I'll go up on my soapbox there a little bit and say, the artists are going to drive this. The, the first person I ever saw do this was Lord, right? Lord. Right. And it was phenomenal. Yeah. we we definitely find when we work with artists and we bring them in and they hear what that sounds like, um, you know, at, at a, at the Ross house or something like that, that they immediately understand, yeah. you know, like why, why, why and they I, I would way. guarantee you that they immediately start thinking to, okay, I might've done that differently. <laughs> well, they start writing. <laughs> if I'd have known this, how it's going to present. Well, they also know? start, they start when they, when they're composing, they start composing it. Like I'm going to put a little something behind you. Right. I'm put a little right. something over here and you, you, you know, orchestrate it different. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, go back to, you know, that concept of mono, if you were orchestrating for mono versus orchestrating an object, oh my gosh, I mean, the, the possibilities are staggering there, you know? Absolutely. Next question. From Tim McCullough in Wichita, Kansas. Hi, Robert. How does your concept of the honest system change the mixing process with object-based mixes? Uh, honest system. Do you mean uh, as in accurate? I'm not sure I follow your question there let's go to the next question next question is from jeff cohen in miami beach florida what are some of the primary differences in doing object-based mixing for live versus creating an obm in post-production uh i haven't done enough post work to compare them uh is my honest answer there i'd be i'd be loath to jump in there and Try to sound like a hotshot there. I, I have a, I have very little experience in post, even though people have brought me in to consult on it from time to time. I guess one one question I have for you is that one of the challenges we have, because I do a fair bit of live and immersive, and one of the things that we do is, is are they going to have a click track? Are they going to be in the same place at the same time? Are, do we know what's going to actually happen, which mm -hmm. definitely affects the resolution of where we can put things. You know, like we can be very precise if we know that those elements are coming in as a, as a you know, they're coming in as an accessory or whether they're actually being played and when are they being played. And so yeah. I think those kinds of things definitely affect how we look at it. Well, and that would definitely affect it in the live world too. If it, if no, things are in, happening in the live world, that's really what hits us, you know, because in post we can always just start putting them around. But in a lot of times in the live world, we want to see that concert a couple of times to figure out what's going on. Well, I, what I was going to say was we have to always keep in mind that there are musicians on stage here, right, performing it. Right. It's not just playback. I mean, if we're talking about an EDM playback here, all bets are off. Who cares? Man, have have a blast with it. But as as you kind of experienced with the Neil story there with Rush, things that you do in that space can impact them on stage. Right. Right. So the the thing could spin out of control very, very quickly. Now, I've heard people say, well, they're on ear monitors now. It won't matter. Uh, not true. Okay. They definitely can, you know, can hear that. You know, there is a loss of coherence there. They're, they kind of, they, they can unnerve them, you know, so. Don't know if we got to the question there. Felt like we got to. Yeah. Next went question. down a rabbit hole. Lucas Herzog from Mainz, Germany. Are their consoles better or worse suited for OBM? Uh, I think. I mean, a lot of the live sound consoles now are handling it really, really well. I think any of the consoles that have OSC uh, capabilities on it, uh, where you can take a little bit more control of that object. Oh, it sounds like the landscapers are here. Uh, yeah, you know, have have a better better ability to do something exotic with it. But in terms of just placing the um, 
placing the objects, all of the consoles can do that relatively easily if, they, if they've if they got the right output structure, meaning they got AVB or Dante or, or Maddie and can interface to it. Yeah. Next question. Mickey Makachor from Manila, Philippines asks, how much more involved is systems engineering and tuning for an immersive PA system? Uh, I'd say considerably more, especially when we start talking about the fill element, when we're starting about talking about putting up spatialized fills for the, the system, then yeah, it, you got to really be on your game there for that, uh, for sure. But, you know, in terms of, you know, coverage, you actually get some relief with this. You know, we always talk about this in stereo, in large format stereo for arenas and, and bigger, is how do we get the corners, the back corners to sound right? That's always one of the biggest challenges. And that back corner problem is a function of one array, the left array arriving at one time, and the right array arriving at one time to that corner. That's what messes up those corners. So that would go away with this. That would that would not be a problem here. Good, Courtney. Yeah, mentioning the the arrays and spatialized audio, and if you're in an open air arena like the Hollywood Bowl or uh, uh, an amphitheater type situation where you don't have any uh, reflectivity from the stage, do you mix in any kind of reverb or echo into the surrounds in the back? I, I would certainly consider it. Yeah, I, I, obviously depending on the act and depending on the content. Yeah, if you could get the arrays up back there, then yeah, might do that. Sure, might even do it at Red Rocks if I was doing it there. You know. Next question. Jesse Mills from San Francisco Bay Area. Speaking of birds, has anyone tried motion capture of wildlife to recreate natural environments in Atmos? Perhaps a collaboration with Bernie Krause. Is that a question for me? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. We'll keep it moving. Uh, next, next question. I'm all for capturing birds in their natural habitat. I'm, I'm down with that. <laughs> Tommy Shantz from St. Paul, Minnesota has a question. What does one need to translate this OBM at home? Do you need a full-blown Atmos system, or will the Samsung soundbar be sufficient? Well, this is a whole other point of... Uh, a whole other topic of discussion here that is very real, because... You know, one of the things we do, you know, since now that we're in the virtual sound check era, you know, this almost demands that we be able to use virtual sound check and build our show files and get everything ready for when we step into the first arena, right? So that demands that I've got, you know, instead of setting up a pair of speakers on my console, I'm going to need to replicate some sort of surround environment to be able to do this in my little listening spot, you know, in my reference spot. Maybe this is what Tim McCullough was getting at. Uh, when he's talking about an honest system, you know, because one of the, I, I think one of the biggest challenges live would be mixing immersive where you're using headphones. You're really doing nothing but validating the object before you push it out into space. I can't make any decision based d decision on spacing in that, you know, that dual mono headphone environment. You know, I've got to have something around me to do it. Uh, so I guess the answer is yes, you you would have to, if you really wanted to do it well, you'd have to build a surround environment, a mini surround environment to be able to get some sense of this. Um, you know, a lot of guys are relying on binaural right now to do it. And honestly, the binaural is not very good at this point. It's not very representative of what you could do, certainly in a big space. You know, you're going to get a lot more depth of position and depth of movement in a big space. So that that is definitely a challenge for the live sound market going forward, no doubt about it. You, you know, I think the guys at the Sphere are doing something really interesting with this, 
where they uh, they built this thing called Minisphere, which is in, I believe is in Burbank. So you can it's go right next program. to the Marriott. I was at the Marriott in uh, right across from the airport, and I looked out my window and I was like, "There's the Minisphere." <laughs> there it is. <laughs> and I was trying to figure out a way. I was trying to who can I talk to to get me in the Minisphere, and I couldn't get, <laughs> get in. <laughs> so I think that's a good idea. You know, especially if you're going to come in and do a residency there, you don't want your first show to be. Yeah. Like, uh-oh, let's fix all this. You know, you're going to have to have a place to program and get things set. Well, and that's part of why Claire Brothers, but, you know, got have Lidditz, right? Is to at least start to get down that path, you know, with the with the stages there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that facility up in Lidditz is just Amazing. otherworldly. It's just yeah. incredible. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead, Jeff. And I can imagine if you're doing that, that virtual sound check, that pre-visualization, if you will, of your of your show in your smaller home Atmos setup, even if you have the full speaker system, probably the next thing we need from monitor manufacturers is the ability to, you know, we have the ability to tweak the timing of those speakers. And maybe we need the ability to to virtually move your listening position over to the left side of the arena and add those hundred millisecond delays between the left and the right stack. So you can kind of hear what that's going to do to to the rhythmic nature of the music, you know. But yeah, that's, I, I think I don't think we're there yet in the monitoring. Yeah, I think you're spot on there. Uh, you know, I mean, we can, you know, ironically, we can kind of do this in today's world with things like Sound Vision for Elisa, where we can go and sit in any seat in the arena and look at the response of the system in that position. You know, we can get a sense of, have we got a lot of overlap here? Is there a lot of, you know, uh, confusion being built by a second array here, a fill array? We, we can get a real, real good sense of that. And we can also do that with Anya. When I was working with Anya, you know, you could go sit in any seat and look at frequency response and amplitude there. Uh, the next, obviously, the next logical step of that is when I'm, if I'm in a virtual environment, how do I go sit and listen to what I'm doing in that seat? Right. So that would, I think that would be really important uh, to be able to kind of inform and uh, educate the artist on, you know, kind of grounding them a little bit. Okay. I know what you did in the studio, but we're in a much, much bigger space here. And, you know, propagation could be an issue if we do this here. So, yeah, I know we, we, I deal mostly with theaters and the physics between a theater and a and near field is just night and day. Like something to see on, see yeah, we'll, we'll take a, that times a hundred if you move up exactly. to an arena and a stadium for sure. Absolutely. Robert, thank you so much for your time. Guys, this was a blast. Thank you for inviting me in. Do you, do you think we can get you back? You can come back and join us uh, any, again. Anytime, man. Anytime. You know, it's a dangerous thing. What have, we what do have this I got every day. Do? We got we do this every day. So so we're, and we do audio once a week. You're on our audio day. So so it's a dangerous thing to say anytime because we'll just be like, <laughs> come back every Wednesday. So um <laughs> so so let's but we'll, we'd love to have you back. Um so thank you so much to for spending so much time with us. Thank you. It's long overdue. I've been trying to get on this show for a long, long time. But so thank you for letting me off the hook and inviting me. That's great. So great. So great to have you. Um, thanks to the producers for all the great questions in the first hour and the second hour. Thanks to the panelists. We can't do this without you uh, answering all these great questions. We were just, we we're going <laughs> like a gangbusters today. And uh, thanks to the incredible crew on the back end. Of course, this isn't your normal uh, Zoom. And we've got a whole production crew on the back end that's make the, that comes alive every day from all over the world to run this virtually. Uh, we have a team that develops all the tools that make this actually possible. And we have um, an incredible team that's managing, making sure that Robert knows where to show up <laughs> and how to make this work. <laughs> and, how to, and, and it's all and just an incredible amount of effort. And we just really appreciate everybody's contribution here. Uh, we traveled, uh, answering all these questions, we traveled 96,000 miles. That's 150,000, 155,000 kilometers. And that all equates to 764 million Bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into After Hours.
Oh, that was great. Robert, Robert, thanks for being here. If I may, what are you using to mute your mic on Zoom? Because it was a perfect mute when you did it. I'm just using the trackball and the he's just really the microphone skill. He's using <laughs> Zoom <laughs> mute. <laughs> Trust me, I know how to mute microphones. I, you know that is a skill I have developed, maybe too well over time. Yeah, that's that's why I had to ask. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's nice and clean. I, I I'm so addicted to my hardware, my hardware switch. I can't. I like I, every time I go, I travel. I'm stuck with the mute button, and I'm like, I can't find it. I can't go over that too many windows. Mitch yeah, was they call us for a uh, fancy box. Yeah. The people that are uh, obsessed with their mute, we call us mutants. Mutants. <laughs> Very good. I like it. All right. Well played. All right. See you later.